0: You are listening to You, Me, and an Album, Episode 41. I'm Al Melchior. It
1: is, it is everything you want a U2 song to be. It is emotionally damaging in a way that you may not recover from. It is uh, just a good melody. Um, it's, it's, it, it allows Adam and Larry to have a little bit of the spotlight in there depending on the mix that you listen to they may even have more of the spotlight than than edge does at times so it's just it's such a good song and i need them to play it live more but i understand why they don't because it's just too good and i don't know how they can adapt it
0: that was jordan step talking about u2's 1997 album pop Jordan is an intellectual property associate for Princeton University Press, co-host of The Guest List on WUGAFM in Athens, Georgia, and the creator and editor-in-chief of the music news and review site, Athens Music Junkie. So Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come here and chat about YouTube. And Been really looking forward to this and uh, welcome to you, me, and an album.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Uh, I'm always up for an excuse to talk about you too, especially... <laughs> Especially not so loved, you two albums.
0: Yeah, well, uh, we'll definitely talk about that angle of it. Um, that you know, that reputation is why we're we're talking about it here. Because I, you know, only really talk about albums I don't know, so I avoided this one. <laughs> and so it's kind of cool, uh, all these years later. Uh, you know, what almost a quarter century later to be able to come back and you know, for me, have this you know undiscovered nugget. Uh, Of an album, so uh, we will certainly get to talking about the album, about you two in general. Uh, I want to start off just talking about uh, the the work that you have done outside of music. So, uh, as uh, mentioned at the outset, you currently uh, work with uh, Princeton University Press, but I know recently you were working for University of Georgia Press and working in acquisitions and it sounds like it that was a really cool job and uh i'm wondering if there was a particular pitch for a book that you received that stands out as memorable or maybe a favorite of yours because uh, i imagine you got some interesting ones
1: oh dude like it it's it's so much <laughs> fun uh reading about music especially when you're not the one who's having to write about it uh, <laughs> especially on deadline um, but yeah, it's it's always fascinating, um, the different things that you get to read whenever uh, people are pitching music books. Um, for us at, at UGA Press, uh, when I was there, we were doing the Music of the American South series. So it hones it in a little bit closer and tries to talk about some of the lesser known aspects of of music of the American South. So, you know, we're known for REM here in Athens, but um, we have books that had uh, ranged from the history of the the steel guitar was a cool one that I read. Um, I'm not sure if that's published yet, but hopefully it will be. Um, My personal favorite was one that I kind of forced one of my friends to write on Deadline uh, called Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia. Um, My good buddy, uh, Gordon Lamb, uh, wrote that book in four months, I want to say. Just night and day researching and uh, put out this amazing book that kind of details, yeah, you know, the time that Widespread Panic took over. Uh, downtown Athens and had a hundred thousand people show up and kind of overwhelmed everybody but he also went into uh, a lot of detail about the municipal aspects of Athens and how the city of Athens built itself to support music festivals uh, because we now have this thing called AthFest which is uh, Mm -hmm. our, our big music festival and have tons of local bands play but that wasn't really a thing at that time and uh the panic show was kind of the catalyst that helped bring in the infrastructure and bring up the quality of production um for Athens at that point so that was probably my favorite music related book that I got to work on there
0: and that uh, yeah that sounds really cool so uh it sounds like a, a just a neat job to be able to see these things come into being um so now you have a very varied uh, career uh, so yeah uh, you've got that work uh but then also of course uh, you've got your your site Athens Music Junkie but I know that you've written for for many publications where did that all start for you and do you remember what the first piece of uh music critique or music journalism was that that got published for you uh
1: so I'm just just for clarity's sake, I'm in my mid-30s, so the first music writing I did was for my own MySpace, MySpace blog, uh, you know, because you're 13 and 14, and just discovering music because you're the one who discovered music, and this <laughs> is write. really cool, and your brain is like finally firing on some more cylinders than just like, oh, I like this song. So uh, when I was 13, I was writing um, basically these semi-sermons on um, U2 and uh, Christian music, and uh, I would write every week. Um, usually on a Saturday, I would post it to, to my MySpace page and I would have Bible quotes and whatever lyric Bono had and like some some background to the actual song and the history. So I was really deep into it very early on. The first piece I got paid to write um, was on, I feel like it was Man Man, which is this experimental group from Philly? At the time, I feel like they've moved since then. Um, but I was I was in my sophomore year of college, and the uh, editor for the local rag came in and was like, "Hey, I'm looking for bloggers." And I was like, "Hey, I have a local music site. You should check it out." And <laughs> she's like, "Cool. Go to the show. It ends at two a.m. Have me something written by six a.m. And I will pay you ten dollars." and I'm like that sounds like a great deal. I'll do it. <laughs> and I love Michelle to death and it, it really it really uh it really did get me uh going with a lot of writing for um Flagpole. It's the name of the publication. So uh that really just kind of spiraled into me continuing to write um getting paid for stuff occasionally like any <laughs> like any good freelancer occasionally I get paid. Um but that was that was really the big thing, and we had a uh we had the indie music rag blog going on um, unfortunately, a lot of that was lost to time uh, maybe good in some cases because there's there's nothing like that that freshman sophomore very into music kind of kind of writing, but uh, I kept a lot of that cringiness on my own blog, so. I get to look at it from time to time and go, "Oh, you, you sweet summer child." Um, <laughs>
0: well, you're you're the uh, editor in chief, right? So you could you know just selectively remove things that you don't want to see anymore, I suppose.
1: I mean, I try not to look at it, but you know, there's there is something to be said for the earnestness um, with which I was writing at that time and trying to recapture a lot of that because I feel like everybody who writes for a living or critiques for a living, goes through phases of, I really love this, but I'm kind of tired of talking about it right now. And, uh, or you get to be a little too self-critical about your own work and you need to take a step back and kind of rediscover what you like about the things you like.
0: I'm always surprised and I shouldn't be, but I'm always surprised when I will read something from a musician uh, that, you know, where they say they don't listen to their own music. Cause it's like, how could you not do if it's something I really like, you know, look what you're missing out on. But by the same token, yeah, you know, I write and yeah, I don't really like to go back <laughs> for the most part and read what <laughs> I've written. So when I put it in that perspective, kind of, kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah. Cause there's, there's always that uncertainty of, I could have phrased that better. Or uh, I could have made that more clear, or I should have been more energetic here, or or that kind of thing. And you, you can self sabotage yourself so hard if you if you continue in that kind of mindset. At some point, you just have to let it go. And I can I can definitely understand why a musician would wanna would wanna tweak things until they're absolutely perfect, which is something that you two does a lot. They they really kind of undercut themselves. Uh, with with trying to make things perfect Instead of just good
0: So Earlier today, I read The Wikipedia page for this album, Pop mm. And As I've gotten further along in doing this podcast this is now episode 41 You know, initially, I, that would be like One of the first things I would do to mm. prepare For the show This time around, I listened to the album five or six times Before doing that, because I just have learned That I don't want to have you know the stories that are on that page uh, you know to to change the way that i think about it or maybe you know direct me to focus on certain things and not on others so uh you know listened to the album several times and then got around to reading it and yeah that that at least on the wikipedia page that was a big part of the story about this album about it being kind of thrown together uh in a rush to to hit deadline so that they could go take it out on tour and you release the album and um i remember there being something similar and tell me because i know you're being a huge youtube fan i'm sure you remember whether or not this is true or not i seem to remember there being something similar for no line on the horizon where they spent a ton of time in the studio and then kind of had to put it together really quickly in the end
1: i mean that's always the story um yeah I'm not sure how much of that I fully buy. I always try to take these things with a grain of salt because U2 does uh, control their image very carefully. But I could I could absolutely see it happening, um, especially with Edge and, and Bono wanting to mix everything within an inch of its life. Um, <laughs> they are fond of that. And, you know, I love No Line on the Horizon. It's, it's probably one of my, my top five uh, U2 albums. But I can understand why people would not like it in the same way. And the the disconnect between it and the 360 tour um, just thematically really did not go together all that well. But, yeah, they um, the band as a whole has a habit of uh, hurry up and wait and wait and wait and then hurry up. Um, with their album cycles, So it's not, they don't seem to have a very consistent way of recording. And I'll just
0: say that I, upon reading that, I found myself annoyed. Hmm. (laughs) Because like you said, they may not have a consistent way of recording, but, uh, you know, they get the job done. And on, on some level, I don't know, I just think about with my own writing and it kind of made me think about, okay, am I just willing just to, settle for mediocrity or something because we all have deadlines, right? We all have deadlines. I mean, and I do this podcast. I have a self-imposed deadline that it's got to be out the door by Sunday at five Eastern time. Um, I do it once a week. And, you know, so the episodes are never perfect, Uh, (laughs) but they, you know, they get out there. So um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know it's ridiculous for me to make this comparison with the U2 album, but by the same token, it's just they have a lot of great albums and it, it just strikes me as as, you know, perfectionism that they don't you know, they don't really need.
1: Yeah, but I mean, they're also at this point coming off of Octong Baby and Zeropa, how do you follow up your creative peak when when you've got that staring in your face, you know? Um, it's enough to give anybody a, a couple of like, oh my god kind of moments when you're when you're trying to come up with an album that at least you feel should surpass that kind of creative peak and then you have this deadline that you kind of sort of imposed on yourself um it's understandable uh why it didn't come together quite as well as they wanted it to because how do you follow up octung baby and zeuropa i just i keep coming to that and in between that they did uh passengers mm-hmm. um which if you've ever heard it i haven't you should it, it's it's not something that i would be like oh hey you should really listen to passengers but if you want to get a good idea of what exactly their headspace was uh, in between zeuropa and uh pop pa- Passengers is it. It's it's a it's a mixed bag, it's them trying things. It's time to go again to your blue room.
0: Got some questions to ask of you
1: in your blue room. Larry Mullen hates it, which means I probably like it more than I should, uh, because it is it is a lot of nonsense. It's it's wonder <laughs> it's wonderful nonsense. They were right to not make it a U two album.
0: So, all right, when you say Larry Mullen hates it, so you like it more than you should, is that out of respect to or deference to Larry Mullen's opinion of it? Then, or yeah,
1: yeah, because yeah, okay. I I greatly respect the rhythm section of U two, um, and it's it's a weird. Reversal of where I was when I was a kid and 13, and just so into YouTube because it's like, man, Bono and Edge are the greatest, and I don't know these two other guys. <laughs> and now, you know, 20 years on, I'm like, Bono and Edge, they need their babysitters. Where are Adam and Larry? And there they are, the reliable rhythm section. You know, you've got adam clayton who's like the coolest guy on the planet you know just has the looks and is laid back and all this stuff and then you've got larry mullen who's just uptight upright you know gonna gonna keep everybody from going too far off track it's it's such a perfect blend of of personalities and you can really hear it in their playing um but it's, it's weird to me how, like, I grew up and got older and decided, hmm, maybe it's good to have boundaries. <laughs>
0: guess it's all a part of it, right? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, now I'm with you, too, because I did not appreciate earlier in my YouTube fandom uh, the rhythm section as much as I should have, and they're incredible, uh, so... Uh, sure, we'll we'll talk about everybody's you know part in the various tracks uh, on this album. But I am curious because you, you keep going back to the age of thirteen, so I assume that's when you started being a fan. Oh yeah, and yeah. So yeah. What, what was your entry point to the catalog?
1: Oh dude, it's uh, it's coming up on almost exactly uh, twenty years. So my introduction to you two um, was the tribute to heroes telethon. Um, that happened shortly after the September 11th, uh, 2001 attacks. Um, I lived in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, so we really didn't get any real radio stations. Um, you know, we would, we would get country every once in a while. If you know, you kind of stood out on the roof and held your, held your, uh, Wire hanger out this way and stuck your tongue out just right. You could maybe get a, a decent signal somewhere. But um, that was that was the the moment I remember watching the tribute to heroes telethon and going, "Wow, this British band is amazing." <laughs> <laughs> because in, in my head, they they started off like live from London, you know, oh, and okay. they had they had a bit of a, a bit of an accent, and I was like, "That's British." it's not very much not so <laughs> but you know th- that was kind of it and um that was the first album i bought with my own money was the tribute to hero cd all that you fashion all that you make all that you build all that you pray
0: all that you measure all that you deal
1: So uh, we went to Walmart like 45 minutes away because that's the closest place I could buy music at the time. And I bought that CD and it got me into all of those artists. So I was the weird 13-year-old, like, really into U2 and Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen. And everybody else is like, why are you listening to all these old men? And I'm like, I don't know. They're (laughs) great. They speak to me on a level that... You other people just can't understand, you know. Just full of full of young angst, and uh, so yeah, that that was the thing that got me into it. And they had um, had all that you can't leave behind out for about a year at that point, and that was that was my entry point. And it, it's still, even though critically, I can look at that album and go, yeah, it's it's cohesive as an album, but the singles are stronger than. You know, the album itself um, It still holds a very special place To me, so Yeah, that that, w- that was it, you know It's it's wild to have An exact moment that you know uh, Like Specifically, but that, that was it
0: Well, I can put that album In a little bit of a different context now Having listened to Pop Which again, I had never listened to Prior to a few days ago um, And And yeah, I've I've not been a huge fan of all you can leave uh, behind, mm-hmm. uh, but now not not after listening to pop, but also you know reading a little bit on the backstory of it with all of the drama that they had in trying to get the album done in time and all the issues with technology, maybe too much technology. I can see the appeal of going back to something very traditional and sort of predictable.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's weird in that I always kind of consider them sibling albums, because they are, in my mind anyway, um, they're, they're not exact opposites of each other, but they are very close to that. Um, you end up with stuff like uh, the song Peace on Earth um, from All That You Can't Leave Behind is that same sort of a little bit of bitterness that uh please has because they're both sort of about the same thing which um at that point was the the troubles in ireland and uh you have that same longing for for just everybody to get along and peace and moving on from things but you have the the difference in it being all that you can't leave behind is a very deliberate return to form, even though I hate that term. It's, it's a very deliberate uh, way of packaging those, those feelings and thoughts, whereas Pop was them trying to be a little kitsch with it, and just not quite nailing it. So I think, if anything, All That You Can't Leave Behind is sort of a little bit more of a redo. Of things, and they they kind of cut the things that weren't working for them on pop, and then went back to their comfort zone with with all that you can't leave behind, and it 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 worked out for them.
0: Yeah, and I get that better now. I can see that uh, as opposed to kind of viewing it as a cop out, which frankly is sort of how I've looked at that album.
1: Yeah, most most do, um, but it it was a massive entry point for a lot of people, um, and I think. I want to say that How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb was probably the last big we have new fans now kind of album that they put out. Um, but a, a lot of a lot of fellow U2 fans kind of put All That You Can't Leave Behind as, as their touchstone, uh, this is where I came in as a fan album. And I've, I, I have not yet met somebody who said, oh yeah, I was introduced to U2 through pop. And that, <laughs> yeah. that's why I'm a fan, is U2's pop. So maybe one yeah,
0: day. That, I was going to say, that would probably be a really interesting conversation to have. Uh, for me, by the way, the entry point, well, the entry point it really was boy, because mm. um, that was the first time I heard U2 was hearing uh, I Will Follow on the radio when uh, when it came out. But uh, becoming a U2 fan for me happened on the war tour. Oh, nice. Uh, where I had a I had a friend who liked you two. I was not particularly into them. Uh, didn't dislike them, just was sort of ambivalent. Uh, but I had a friend with a birthday coming up, so I bought two tickets, one for him and one for me. And that's one of those concerts that just stands out. Is one of the great concerts that I've seen, and I just feel so lucky to have seen it because it was still it was a when they were playing theaters and bono jumping on top of amps and uh.
1: <laughs> what one of my one of my friends uh, tells a story of the the show he went to he ended up jumping on stage and uh i think he had skipped school that day to jump on stage and bono like kind of chased after him and his mom was a teacher and heard about it all all the next school day is like hey did you know that your son jumped on stage at a youtube concert (laughs) and was dragged off by security and she's like no okay but yeah they're they're amazing to see live and I, i i really would have killed to have seen them on on something like the war tour in a smaller venue like that
0: yeah, and no, I have considered myself to be very, very fortunate. And again, it wasn't one of those concerts that I really sought out for myself. So I'm really lucky that I got to see that. And it wasn't very long at all before they were playing arenas. It was really just a matter of months uh, at that point. And uh, I do want to talk about why, um, you know, this album is, is one that clearly you're really enthusiastic about, even though just a little while ago, you know, you did acknowledge some of maybe the, the weaker points of the album. But... Um, I I want to put this in context for myself because this is really, for me, a very different episode of this podcast because the the theme of the podcast, for those maybe just trying it out for the first time, is that I invite somebody on to talk about an album and usually an artist that I know (laughs) almost nothing about. And U2 is the band I've probably seen live more than any other band. I've seen them probably eight or nine times. Um, I know almost all their albums except, well, now I know Pop, but I a week ago I didn't. And the last two albums I never bothered to check in on. But this is a really, really interesting experience for me to now dig into this album because it came out in 97. And maybe it was just kind of where I was at in life at that point, really um, starting an academic career and... Uh, really being very focused on that and also just things personally that were going on at that point. Um, and uh, I, I checked out on a lot of my favorite bands. So I just, after, um, after Zuropa, which I didn't really like that much at the time, I had no interest in whatever u two was doing next. Uh, same thing, the REM, mm. one of my favorite bands uh, after monster which I didn't like as much as some of the other albums, I decided I was going to pass on New Adventures in Hi-Fi. And then a friend told me, no, you have to listen to this album. And I was very glad <laughs> that I did because it's turned out very quickly to be one of my favorites of theirs. And um, Genesis, who's been my favorite band, you know, since I was 15, um, that was their, their the 97 was the year that they put out their last album. It was without Phil Collins, but I didn't wound up not listening to that album until like 20... 20- 14 2015 oh wow and it's a really good album that they put out that year so uh yeah it's kind of wild that i mean not in the case of rem because i caught up on that album really quickly but you know in, t- in terms of u2 and genesis to like catch up on these 1997 albums decades <laughs> after they came out uh so i'm really glad that uh you know you're affording me the opportunity to do that so i'm still trying to figure out obviously having to listen to the album like six times you know where i would put it in uh in context with the other albums for you too, but where, where do you uh, see this album? Is it one of your favorites?
1: It's definitely one that I tend to gravitate more to just listen to. Um, I have this thing where I, I'm not very good at just passively listening to, to music. Um, I can't really listen to music while I work. So um, I'm, I, I do tend to reach for pop just because it's a little bit more, energetic than some of their other stuff um and honestly it's one of the ones that I can more closely listen to if I want to but I can also drown it out just a little bit more (laughs) which which doesn't sound like it it gives uh pop any favors but um I I do enjoy the oddballness of it and my, my friends will, will tell you, like, I tend to like the little misfit albums that uh, people don't really talk about, you know. So, R.E.M.'s Reveal and Up are um, oh. my favorites. <laughs> um, I, I love Bowie's later albums, like Heathen and uh, The Next Day. And just, you know, those like little weirdo ones that people um, tend to either overlook or just not like. I love to find weird little things like that and and learn to love them. Because listening to Pop for the first time, I was like, this is not that great. But then you listen to something like Mofo and you're like, okay, why are they not playing this more? And (laughs) I mean, it's because it's hard to play live, apparently, is is the answer to that.
0: That was an interesting thing too for me was that uh, I was only familiar with or I so, thought, so I thought I was only familiar with two songs on the album, Disco and Staring at the Sun, because those are the, the songs I heard on the radio. And if I heard Disco Tech on the radio three times, that was a lot. I might have only heard it twice. Yeah. it re- That they, that got dropped from rotation really quickly on whatever station I was listening to in 97. <laughs> um, Staring at the Sun obviously got a lot more airplay. Um but I was kind of surprised I wasn't familiar with more of the album because of seeing them live because I did see them on the 360 tour mm-hmm. a couple of times. And um, Last Night on Earth was the song that once I heard it, I'm like, oh, I know this song. And I'm sure it's because I heard them play it live.
1: Yeah, they really um, they really do not like playing songs from pop live. And it's a shame. And when when they do play them, they do them all acoustically, and I, I understand that that's probably a technical thing that I'm not fully picking up on. Um, I know, especially as, as he's aged, Bono's voice can't necessarily hit some of the, that uh, register and, um, and perform them quite the same way as, as back in 97. But, you know, I really want them to go full-fledged on Gone or Staring at the Sun, or Please, or or Mofo, or any of these, where it's they've got such great guitar riffs to them. They're so mean. Which is not something that you think U2 can be. You know, you can think U2 would be brutal or devastating, but not mean. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like pop, because U2 gets to be mean. And that's not really... That's not really a... a, a, It's not the look that everybody wanted from them, apparently. And it's not really something that they do that often.
0: Well, first of all, I love that your use of that adjective. Because I would not have come up with that. I don't think I hadn't come up with that as a descriptor for this album and some of the songs on it. But I think you're you're spot on. And I I think you're even more spot on as to why this album wasn't very popular. Because I think, yeah, people were looking for, for something they were comfortable with and expected from from Bono and from U2 and they they didn't really get it with this album. And it's to me it was deceptive because what I kept remember reading and hearing about this album was it's so electronic and and ambient and um and to me that's not what makes the album different at all because you got some of that on October baby Oh, Europa, yeah. oh yeah, uh it's actually I think it's the latter half of the album, which which makes it really distinct and different, uh, which doesn't have as much of that on it,
1: yeah, I think we were trying to at that time trying to figure out what electronic meant um because i I just pulled up the nineteen ninety seven uh top billboard albums, and it's like, okay, we were listening to the Spice Girls and Celine Dion. Jewel, Leanne Rhymes, you know, Hanson, you know, I, I was listening to a lot of Hanson in 97, but we weren't listening to what uh, people would consider electronic, at least not here in the States, and I can understand why people might have wanted to call that electronic and, and ambient because we weren't listening to anything like that on, on popular radio, so, yep. but at the same time, we were also starting to feel the effects of um, the Telecommunications Act of 1996, where um, all of the radio stations started to become one big conglomerate. So that probably has a lot to do with it, too. Um,
0: yeah, that's a great point. I did not uh, yeah, think about the timing of that. But absolutely, I think that uh, affected the way that this album was received and, and not really played very much. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's uh, talk about the tracks individually. Sure. Um And uh, sometimes I go through them in order. Sometimes I don't. But for whatever I'm I'm, I'm feeling for this album, makes sense to go through in order, especially since the album has a very kind of distinct uh, arc uh, that uh, I know Bono himself described it as starting out as a party and ending up as a funeral, which seems <laughs> pretty apt. <laughs> um, so we'll start with the party and discotech.
1: Have you seen have you seen the the video for Discotech?
0: I have not. Oh I've my not God. seen any. How many videos did they make for the song because I haven't seen any?
1: I want to say there were at least 4. Oh wow. Um, so Discotech got a video. Um, if God will send his angels got a video. I remember Staring at the Sun got at least two versions. Um last night on earth got one oh please also got one so there's there's at least five they may have done six or so but i remember at least five videos but the discotheque music video is a triumph of awkwardness and i love it so much because of that
0: well now i really regret not having seen it before this i obviously will now go check it out afterwards <laughs> i don't know if i want spoilers or not
1: Um, if you've ever wanted to see you two attempt a choreographed dance routine. Oh, wow. That's, that's really all I need to say about (laughs) Disco
0: Oh, man. Well, I love this track. I didn't love it the first couple times I heard it back in 97. And now I don't remember why I didn't, because I just think it's amazing.
1: When you were listening to it in 97, you were probably listening to one of the radio edits instead of the the full track, which I like I like the regular five minute long discotheque track from the from the actual album because it does build into something and it really does make you feel like you're in a in a really bad, bad bar slash rave and things are going just terribly wrong. <laughs> you too is doing a choreographed dance in front of you and you don't understand why. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's so good. And Edge's guitar on this is just magnificent. Um, we, we really don't get to see that kind of huh, Edge on Edge that often. Um, and he's he really just kind of came up with an interesting riff that I think people don't give him enough credit for. Yeah, I mean, people don't, people don't listen to Edge's riffs as much as they should, but they, discotheque really, uh, in my opinion, anyway, um, is, is a special one, and it, it probably doesn't have any place at all in their set list nowadays. I can't figure out how they would thematically do it. But I wish they would bring it out for like a cor- an encore at some point.
0: Yeah, no, I haven't seen them play it live and I just think it would kick ass. Uh and you're right, it does build and if people don't pay pay attention to Edge's riffs, I think it would be impossible to ignore it in this song. It it, it to me it's just so good. Um and I was trying to figure out exactly what makes it so good because it, it sounds simple. Mm -hmm. um, But it just, it's been in my head for days. Uh, And yet it does build uh, around that. And one of the notes that I wrote to myself about this song is that there are elements of new and old U2 sounds in this one. So it's, I think it's a great opener, not only just because it's more energetic than maybe any other track, but uh, you've got that riff, which, you know, sounds much. I'll, I'll, you know, borrow your, your pun, you know, it's much edgier than what you're used to from edge. But um, then, you know, there's the uh, section a little bit later on where you've got the very kind of classic echoey guitar sound from him. And it's very seamless, the transition from one to the other.
1: Yeah, it and that's really something that I feel like they've they've lost a little bit um, of on their more recent songs. Uh, their more recent songs are a lot more stitched together, whereas "Discothèque," it takes a couple of completely different ideas and just weaves them all together, and it works even though it shouldn't, um, because it is Edge still playing in his own wheelhouse, but just with a little bit of the echo effects off because the riff itself that it's it's very it's very harsh and uh very percussive which is kind of um it's an aspect of edge's guitar playing that we don't talk about a whole lot because when you think edge's guitar playing you think uh, these these soaring heights and the reverb and the and the solos and the echo effects and the delay you don't think about that percussive playing that he's done, um, but that was like a, a hallmark of his really early stuff too. Um, whenever they were back doing the the more punky songs on Boy, so this is kind of like a little bit of a hat tilt to to that, and um, it's it's a really. It's a really underrated thing, I think, but that's, but that's just me.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really well put. And, uh, yeah, that riff is just uh, such a highlight for me of this album. Uh, but go- going on to do you feel love? This was what really sold me on the album
1: because oh, really? I was
0: familiar with, yeah, I was familiar with tech, And like I said, I didn't remember liking it very much initially, but just from the first listen this time around, just thinking, God, this is such a great song. Uh, but then hearing the first U2 song on the album that I wasn't familiar with and that intro just wrote me in right away. Um, and, it, you know, very, very kind of soft in the beginning. And then Larry Mullen comes in and, and uh, you know, and it just builds up. And it's, it's just such a great melody.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, I just, Yeah, I just thought, I just thought this is just a good song like there, there's all this and all this baggage about you know oh well this is the electronic album this is the experimental album but like this, this is track two and it's just a good well written song
1: yeah it's it's weird be- for me because I f- I read it as like U2's attempt at being sexy and sexy is not really something I equate with with U2 <laughs> um, you know they they had their moments in, in the late 80s early early 90s um, but this is like the dirty kind of sexy like this is messy sexy and it works um you know you've got the lyrics like you, you got my shoelaces undone take my shirt go on take it off me and it's it's just raunchy in a way that you're not really expecting lyrically you got then listening to the the music surrounding it 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 just doesn't feel like you too so it's really interesting to me that this is the song that that sold you on pop
0: well maybe it's cuz i came in expecting it not to sound like you too mm. so i and I, I get that because especially with you know this is a band that you love it's a band that i love and so it's very easy to come into an album Wanting the things from that band that you you have you know come to know and love over the years, and yeah, you're right. It doesn't really sound that much like a a U two song from from a previous album. But maybe it is just because I I had lowered my defenses <laughs> uh, in terms of that expectation. Because like I said, my my reaction it was something I actually wrote down. Like this is just a good song. And uh, and right now I'm thinking back to the episode I did with Kate Shutt on um, Ella Fitzgerald and Cole Porter, and and you know, I think she said something to the effect or maybe the exact words of a good song is just a good song and that was how I felt about this. Like it's just catchy, melodic. Um and I and I like the way that it, it builds up. I just thought it was a good song.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's definitely um underrated in terms of their catalogue. I don't really see them bringing this one out of the mouth the mothballs at all either. Um but I would, I would definitely lose my mind if if they did.
0: <laughs> now I want, I want to come back to what you were saying before about this being like kind of the the dirty version of YouTube because I uh, I am a a music first person. Hmm. Um, it takes me a while to to get to the lyrics usually, um, and on most of the songs I had to look up the lyrics. But I didn't do that until I think it was the fifth time I listened to it, and. It changed the way that I perceived some of these songs. Because, yeah, with uh, Do You Feel Love, like I was just focused on the melody mm-hmm. and the production. And then I'm reading the lyrics. And I made a comparison uh, with an album that I love uh, by James. Um, pleased to meet you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite albums. But it's an album that at times gives me the creeps. Yeah. It makes me feel ooky. It's a and little after creepy. Knowing- after <laughs> Yeah. And so after reading the lyrics and then listening to pop for, I guess it was probably the sixth time on the fifth time catching up on all the lyrics, reading the lyrics where I I couldn't make them out for myself. And then, you know, putting it all together on the sixth listen, it was very much like the experience of, of, um, of listening to pleased meet you. Like I love these songs, but I feel a little ooky now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think that's the key difference. Um, thematically that, uh, they're hitting at between the protagonist of, that you can, that you can call of, um, Octung and Zuropa, because it's kind of a dirty, sexy, in an okay way. It's like, man, this guy, he'll be okay, you know. But then there's, there's that fine line where it starts to become pathetic mm-hmm. and creepy. And that's, that's where pop is taking that kind of protagonist, if you want to ascribe a single protagonist to, to all the songs or at least a through line, um, it's that downside. It's, it's the dregs. It is, it's the guys who didn't make it out of the club. Okay. You know? And that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's something I do appreciate that they did try to go into, um, especially lyrically. And I always have to, um, my fiance is very much the same as you in that he's a music first kind of person. And I have to shove lyrics in front of him and be like, okay, it's also referring to this. Um, but one of the best things about you two is that the, the lyrics often do mirror what's happening musically. I remember, Mm -hmm. um, Larry Mullen did drums on an Alice Cooper album, recently and Alice was uh, very surprised that Larry asked for the lyrics before he started. And I think that does kind of speak to the care that they try to put into whether or not they succeed um, into the album where where the music matches the lyrics because pop is pop is gross, it's dirty. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 dirty. And I mean, the next song on the album is literally Mofo, um, yeah. which is such a complex song. I adore it.
0: Well, let's get to it. And I will say that, yeah, this is a song that gave me creepy feelings even before I read all the lyrics.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's pretty out there. But, uh, yeah, I still love
1: it. So, Mofo it kind of hits on every single aspect of what bono writes about um he his his main lyrical uh touchstones are always you know his parents uh love um spirituality and uh just trying to find your way in the world kind of deal and mofo just really lyrically at least takes all of that and just puts it into this one rock star of a person and it's just i think it's one of their i think it's one of bono's most honest lyrics
0: is there a particular line or set of lines that really you know hammers that home
1: well it, it took me until i heard um they did a song recently on one of their more recent albums called uh, The Showman. And I'm not a big fan of it. But it, he's basically like the showman gives you a front row to his heart and prays that his heartache will chart and making a spectacle falling apart is just the start of the show. Kind of cheesy, especially when he did something like that so much earlier with Mofo. And and talking about like looking for baby Jesus under the trash, uh, waiting for so long to hear you say so. I'm still a child. No one tells me no. And he he goes into that a little bit further um, later on in in the album um, with Gone. But this this whole pop album to me is is basically like a washed up rock star trying to trying to be sexy and failing miserably at it and uh i i can see where if you don't know that that's what's being uh aimed at how it could have fallen flat very easily um but mofo is is really just an a list of um, just a list of of Bono saying, this is what I'm trying to do? Um, I'm not okay. Uh, you know, I lost my mother at a very young age. I tried to fill the void with rock and roll. Not really working. I tried to fill the, the void with God. That's also not really working right now. Um, trying to f- figure out who I am and no one is telling me know when I push on stuff so I'm it it's that kind of like rock star as a small child thing where uh they have to be managed and you have to tell them okay well you could go out tonight just remember you've got a show tomorrow and you you're really kind of powerless to stop them from you know going out and ruining their night This is this is a little bit of the mask slipping, and I love it so much.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and the the line that you read, and, and particularly the the line about uh, you know, there's no one to tell me no. Um, that seems to be really central to the whole album, and um, that was my first clue that. And I wasn't entirely sure how, autobi- how autobiographical it was, but assuming it's about him, um, that was my first clue that he is writing about being extremely lost and whether it's, you know, lost because he's not sure what to do without his faith or without his mother or, you know, comes up in in different guises throughout the album. But that just seems to be a through line in, in pretty much every track.
1: Yeah. And I mean, at this point, I'm trying to think he would have been about 35 or so. So around, around my age, he's, a father to two small children um most popular band in the world but suddenly made a little bit irrelevant um with all of the new the new tech the new songs coming out um and just trying to figure out your way forward it's always difficult to try and abscribe. um lyrics to the actual singer because you never want to confuse the song with the singer because they they do often admit to things but through a character but Mm -hmm. bono's whole thing is okay he will he will he will admit things to you but still keep you at arm's length so it's not really a full confessional But this is a little bit of a peek under the hood and seeing like, okay, this guy's, you have to kind of be a little messed up to be a rock star of that caliber in the same way you have to kind of be a little messed up to want to be a politician, um, and want that power and attention. This is, this is kind of a peek into like, careful what you wish for, because it's a, it's a little harsh.
0: Very harsh. Very harsh, yeah. And no no punches pulled uh, in that song. I, I have one question since you've, I'm sure, listened to this many, many, many more times <laughs> than I have. What is the line that he's kind of muttering in between the other ones that to me sounds like Little Red Van?
1: I think it's um, been around back, been around front.
0: Yeah, I didn't really think it was little red, little red van.
1: I, I think that's, ed- <laughs> I think I think that's Edge going been around back, been around front. Um, don't quote me on that, uh, but I, I think that's what that is. Um, it, yeah, it's definitely not better. little red van. <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: i was trying very hard (laughs) and yeah yeah it didn't even occur to me it was edge but yeah that yeah that makes sense uh anyway that was bugging me so uh all right well now that i've got that hopefully resolved uh, let's go on to if god will send his angels this felt like a little bit more familiar territory um
1: yeah yeah it it ended up on the soundtrack for um god the nick cage movie city of angels City of oh, Angels. Okay. So it, it did end up on City of Angels right next to like Iris. So I I feel like if, if anything would have turned you off of you two, it would have been listening to Iris and then listening to If God Will Send His Angels, which is just it's okay. It's okay. Um, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's just kind of a little maudlin,
0: a, a little depressing. Yeah. It um it grew on me a little with each time I listened to it. The first probably couple of times I listened, I was you know kind of wanting to skip forward. But in all fairness, I mean, I remember feeling that way. And this will probably sound crazy to, to a lot of people, but I remember feeling that way the first couple of times I heard. Um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for.
1: That's fair. Um,
0: you know, it just, it, it's just, it's... Yeah, mid tempo. You kind of have to just let the groove take you on this one. Yeah, it's so yeah. It's yeah. I would say I agree. It's it's okay. What I actually found the most interesting about this song was the lyrics, and not even the lyrics themselves, but just what Bono does with them. Like uh, there are a couple of lines at least where he repurposes the lines in different parts of the song. So like, there's the line, "It's the stuff of country songs." Which the first time he sings it, I think, is the second part of a couplet. And then the next time he sings it, it's the first part. So he's not just repeating, you know, verses or, or you know, choruses, uh, but kind of almost mixing and matching. I just, I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think he's, uh, this is one of the ones where he's playing with a lot of... um vowel sounds and consonant sounds and it's more about how those sound where they're placed within the music than the lyrics itself it's the blind, the it's the ghost, for the um i remember reading about uh what the band terms Bongalese which is when he's just kind of singing nonsense, trying to get uh, into his head um, what what the vocal melody is going to be. And I feel like if God will send his angels, it's probably just him going... Duh, 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 and just trying to, trying to figure out what vowel sounds will sound really good because it is kind of a... Um, I don't want to say it's a nothing song, but it's definitely one that... If God will send his angels was drowning in the ocean, I would not save it over some of the other ones. Yeah, well, that's fair. You gotta gotta have your favorites. <laughs> yeah, this it's
0: not one of mine at this stage either, so uh all right. Well the next track is Staring at the Sun, which is the one that I most definitely knew oh, from yeah. this album. And I had a bit of a journey with this one too, because I'll say that, um, this has never been one of my favorite U2 songs, which is kind of my polite way of saying it's always been one of my least favorite U2 really? songs. it's never really done anything for me. But hearing it in the context of this album, um, and also really paying attention to the lyrics for probably the first time, I like it a lot more now.
1: Interesting.
0: Because this, yeah, this is the this is the meanness. Yeah, it it, it
1: really is, and I'm, I'm wondering. You've probably only ever heard it acoustic live, correct? Or have they have they played it electric? I don't when you've when you've seen them.
0: Well, I will tell you that um, if I don't recall hearing it live, and that's not to say I haven't heard it. Mm-hmm. It's just it may may not have made an impression on me because that that's really been my opinion of the song.
1: Because this this is the the U two song I use for karaoke. Oh. <laughs> which is which is always a fun time um but yeah it's i can understand how this would be somebody's least favorite u2 song because it is just it's it's not uplifting it's not um it's not happy it's it's strangely pessimistic coming from this very optimistic band and um you know just deliberately trying to sink into the ignorance and, and deliberately staring at the sun hoping you'll go blind is a very just nihilistic kind of viewpoint coming from, you know, the band who would eventually write Beautiful Day. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> but I, I know that my version to the song prior to this has been 100% the music. Under. Yeah because,
1: yeah.
0: because I wasn't really paying that much attention to the lyrics. and actually there was a part of the song that I liked it was that uh verse where um with the line uh, uh, like like a beach uh I can't remember the whole the whole thing but the the, the waves break your back like a beach mm-hmm. or something.
1: Waves that leave me out of reach. Breaking on your back like a beach where we ever live in peace. As those that can do
0: But, uh, which I thought just melodically was kind of an interesting line, but, um, it's, it's probably just like 90% edges guitar tone on this one that I've just found grating.
1: It's a little weak. It's it's a little weak. It it doesn't have, um, it's, it's very trebly. But mm-hmm. I think part of that was the idea was that they would allow um, Adam's bass to come through more because he does have a, a more interesting bass part um, in the beginning for this. But the way that it's mixed, I it just doesn't do it any favors. It just sounds very, very weak and, and timid compared to how it could. Um, I think that's probably why they they use uh, acoustic guitars to play it, because it does have a good tune. It does have a good melody. Um, but the yeah, I, I hear you because the tone is just very off. It's very sickly.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect word for it. But I, I, I now that I am paying more attention to the entirety of the song, I, I won't even say that I dislike it at this point. I think it's actually kind of an interesting song, and it's the the lyrics are very unfiltered. Um, so it gives it some character.
1: Yeah. I mean, having, having you two's nihilistic album to discuss is, is a very interesting one, especially considering all that you can't leave behind uh, directly followed it. But yeah. this is a very like desolate album lyrically. And uh it, I think that's one of the reasons why I I do love and appreciate it is because it's so weird to hear that from you two. Um because you we've heard that kind of stuff before, that dark, um, like bad or uh some of the stuff from, from Joshua Tree, the, the very just you know, this is this is kinda of dark thing going on. But um man, the uh The just sheer hopelessness with some of this is just wild
0: i was actually thinking about that earlier today uh comparing some of these tracks to bad because yeah bad is clearly uh you know very disturbing and depressing and yet i just don't feel like bono embodies it the way that he embodies some of these tracks so yeah because is just yeah
1: because bad's a character You know, it's it's way more of a character. And I think what's disturbing is that this is very close to the chest. Um, It feels like Bono's not so much a character in this. He's not singing about somebody who's very far outside of the U2 camp. He's talking about something that could be within. And that's uh, a little distressing.
0: Yeah, no, that is exactly it. And it doesn't get any less bleak from here. Uh, (laughs) So uh, let's uh, just go deeper into the muck here. Uh, Last Night on Earth, uh, this is a good song. Um, And one of the the notes that I wrote was that I do feel like, and I don't put this on Bono so much as, as on the production, that his vocals feel very muted for a lot of this album, but not on this track. This is just, you know, full throttle Bono wailing in the chorus, and I love it. (laughs) Ha ha ha.
1: Um, it's definitely one of those ones that I'm kind of lukewarm on. Um, I think it's just because uh, I'm not as familiar with it as the others. This is kind of one of the ones that if it skips, it skips. Um, the, they did do a um, a video for this one. And it was literally like end of the world. We're walking through a desolate landscape kind of deal. Um I just, I really don't have a whole lot of, with this one, you know. It's just kind of like it's there, it's all right. It 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 probably could have could have done with some retooling. Um.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know what was what was weird about this album for me, Jordan, was um I think this breaks a streak for me because every single week, and I say this on a lot of the episodes, that I'll listen to the album. In the car, uh, you know, at home on speakers, and then, you know, getting around to the third, fourth or so, uh, listen, put on the headphones. And it always, the album just always comes so much more alive on headphones. This was the opposite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I actually liked the album better in the car than with my headphones on.
1: Because it's not mixed all that well it's not mixed yeah. all that well. Like the highs are too high. The the lows and mids are all muddled. It's, it's not, and, and I hate to be like, Oh, the mix is bad, but the mix is bad. There's a reason why they put out like 12 different versions of every song. Um, because just the parts that we love about you two aren't, aren't shining in the way that we expect them to, you know? Uh, yeah. it's just, it's it's all very that mid kind of thing, and I I feel like that might have been a little bit of that mid nineties early, very early aughts kind of production starting to creep in, where mm-hmm. everybody was starting to try and make it sound really good, um, for CD, but not necessarily for good CD. So I don't I don't know I'm a, I'm a little. I'm a little annoyed at how how poorly this this album was mixed. It's it's one of those things where I would hope that when they uh, eventually re-release everything again and again, um, they would remix it a little bit. You know, bring 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 some of that low end back because it's it's really not there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would certainly like to hear that version. And I think that this song especially could really benefit from that because, boy, it sounded great in my car. And I don't have a, you know, tremendous car stereo or anything, but uh, I really jammed on this one driving around. And then, yeah, put the headphones on. Like, what what just happened there? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is another one, too, where I, I thought there was some clever stuff going on with the lyrics or or maybe even just the way that, that Bono sings his uh, lyrics. Well, I say his lyrics, I guess, could be the edges. But, um a couple of lines here that could be very cliche and were even kind of based on cliches, but came across as sort of clever in the delivery. Uh, and the sun, son, here it comes. So, you know, alluding back to George Harrison with that one. But <laughs> again, in a very, very bleak setting. So I thought that that juxtaposition was really cool. And the line, and I just love the way he delivers this. And it's a bit of a surprise. Uh, She hasn't been to bed in weeks. She'll be dead soon. Then she'll sleep. Which, again, is kind of just taking a cliche of, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead and kind of lengthening it out and making it super melodic. So, you know, he's singing this very bleak thing, but in a kind of bouncy, sing-songy way that just really kind of tickled me.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of um, Octung Baby and Zoropa hanging on there where they would take the, the cliche sayings and turn them on their heads and, and post them on the video wall behind them. He's doing it lyrically and it's, uh, it's a neat trick. It's a neat trick if you can get away with it. And he, do- yeah. he does there. <laughs> um, there are some lines where later on in the career it just it doesn't work. Um I'm thinking mostly The Air Is Heavy Heavy As A Truck from Electrical Storm where I just I can't <laughs> <laughs> I love I love that song so much it's in my top 10 U2 songs ever but The Air Is Heavy Heavy As A Truck um is probably one of my all-time worst lyrics I've ever heard
0: That is pretty bad yeah <laughs> Uh, Well, you gave me a good segue here because the next song is Gone and you were, you know, just talking about Mm. Electrical Storm being a top 10 for you. Now, I feel like it's utterly ridiculous for me to take any song on an album that I've listened to six times and try to compare it to songs that I've heard probably hundreds of times. But after hearing Gone probably the second or third time, I was thinking, this is one of U2's best songs. Absolutely. And that that didn't waver with the subsequent listens. So I'm so glad you agree with that. This song is fantastic.
1: It is, it is everything you want a U2 song to be. It is emotionally damaging in a way that you may not recover from. It is uh, just a good melody. Um, It's, it's, it, it allows Adam and Larry to have a little bit of the spotlight in there. Depending on the mix that you listen to, they may even have more of the spotlight than than Edge does at times. So it's just, it's such a good song and I need them to play it live more. But I understand why they don't because it's just too good and I don't know how they can adapt it. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how it would come off, but it would be amazing if they could find some way to do it. Um, And I just feel like the song is the whole package because you got the soaring guitar beautiful beautiful piano like from october mm-hmm. um that's what you know it reminded me of just beautiful heart wrenching piano tone and uh and just some really great lyrics and um i wrote down a couple to make note of here you wanted to get somewhere so badly you had to lose yourself along the way you changed your name but that's okay it's necessary and what you leave behind you don't miss anyway which i also have to wonder was if that was intentionally carried over into the, the title of the next album or if that's just unrelated.
1: I think it was, I think it was unrelated at the time, but doesn't it make it a nice little segue into, into the next one?
0: It, it does. And I mean, and you, you know, you were talking about, you know, that next album being, you know, more, more hopeful and, you know, more positive. And yet this, that line just captures the hopelessness of this album and just the whole idea of chasing this magical other and you can't help yourself from doing it, but it's it's not taking you anywhere good. Uh, I just found it devastating
1: it's 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 a magnificent song and uh it really is the exact opposite of everything that all that you can't leave behind stands for. Um, it is and I want to say at this point, trying to remember if they had recorded this. So, um, you know, Bono was friends with a lot of rock stars, uh, during this time. And I think at this point he was hanging out with, um, a lot of people who were going through a lot of the same thing where you have reached your creative peak. So, Uh, I'm thinking about someone like Michael Hutchins um, who Mm -hmm. who passed away during this time and who um, stuck in a moment, I think was, was primarily written about, but I remember um, they had dedicated gone to Michael Hutchins as, as well during the Pop Mart tour. And I think that says a lot about the mindset That these lead singers and performers end up taking on is um, it's kind of like uh, the the ideas that Radiohead talks about in uh, How to Disappear Completely. You know, I'm not there, this isn't happening sort of thing where you have to divorce yourself and create that persona to protect yourself. And Mm -hmm. Gone is such a lyrical tour de force that that really captures that kind of thing. Um, It's just like, it's easy for us to look on the outside and go, oh man, it's got to be so cool. You know, people love you and and you have money and that thing. And and yeah, I'm not going to sit there and be like, oh, poor rich man. But at the same time, there is a level of, I'm sure, loneliness and, just sacrifice that you do have to make when you get to that level of okay you know do I get to be Paul today or do I get to be Bono and I think at this point he had been Bono for so long that it was something he could finally feel a little bit more comfortable talking about lyrically Um, and just kind of letting people in just a tiny bit to, to understand what he and his fellow bandmates had always kind of gone through. Um because I mean it is called gone. You know, there's there's no one there. He's gone. You're not seeing Paul Hewson, you're seeing Bono. I'm to you every day i didn't want it that much anyway but it it is one of those things where he's also kind of wrestling with the idea that maybe you can walk away from that and reclaim a little bit of yourself but the whole point of this album is it is nihilistic and for this protagonist at least there's no recovery
0: yeah yeah it's yeah again you know a little bit icky yeah so good
1: a <laughs> little bit icky a little bit icky yeah. but it, it's it's so devastating and dark it's it's you two's emo period
0: <laughs> yeah i hadn't thought of that but uh, yeah absolutely yes uh all right well let's uh yeah delve deeper yet here uh miami and
1: worst song on the this album
0: you... yeah oh yeah I, I really don't like this song <laughs> but I, I said but at least it really does capture the mood of miami and, and having lived there for almost 20 years um you know i really could could feel
1: it oh my gosh yeah <laughs> but, i've, I've uh, only yeah. been through there like once or twice and you want to talk about like if you really want to get lost and and have that icky feeling, Miami the song really kind of reflects Miami the place at that point in time. It's just yeah, not, not my favorite on the album. It it and uh, if God will send His angels can can go uh, jump into the ocean together and disappear.
0: Well, to <laughs> to kind of give <laughs> to kind of give it away, I. I'm not really that enamored with the album from this point forward. Um, Yeah. So, and I, I, this is where I, I, I'm kind of hedging and hesitating because I also feel like at least some of these are the kinds of songs that I know are just going to require of me, more of me as a listener. Um, Because, you know, they're slower, they're sparer, they're somehow even more depressing. Um, So they're not easy listens but just on a surface level they none of the the remainder of these songs really appeal to me that much
1: interesting interesting i can i can understand why miami especially and playboy mansion yeah. you know we can we can talk about them both together they're just very they're present um but they're too long i mean both of them are like four minutes, fifty-two seconds, four minutes and forty seconds. You don't need that much of Miami and Playboy Mansion, um, and I really doubt if anybody's like clamoring to hear those live. Uh, they're just—they're more of that depressing kind of downward arc of this this character, and there's there's not really a whole lot redeemable about those two.
0: Well, and at least Miami I found a little bit interesting. Um the soundscape is interesting. I kinda of thought that the the hi hat, the way it was processed, was was kinda of cool to listen to.
1: Big girl with a sweet tooth watches. Skinny girl in the photo shoot. Fresh man squeaky clean she takes
0: The Playboy Mansion, I I, I really I couldn't find anything there to kind of hook me to get more interested in the song.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's really not a whole lot there. Miami is at least interesting in that it's like listening to a car crash. Um, You just, you're wondering what the heck is going on and you, you're kind of fascinated by how this is happening. But Playboy Mansion is just why? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why?
0: Yeah, I don't feel like this album needed it.
1: It really did. I didn't feel
0: like didn't feel like it was a compelling story. It definitely was not compelling musically. Yeah. And the, I think it needed to go on the yeah, cutting room floor. They
1: had other out they had other songs at that point too that they could have workshopped in there, but you know, that's that's part of the uh the time, you know. They they really uh they really messed that one up, I think. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, I'm glad it's not just me cuz that definitely I mean I I feel like maybe I misrepresent a little bit because I mean I could lump these last five songs together and say, "Yeah, I feel like this is a weak stretch of the album." But but to me, the The Playboy Mansion is a low point from which it does recover at least somewhat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. See, Play Playboy Mansion's just such a nothing in my head. I'm I'm, I'm really struggling to remember. Oh, yeah, that's how it goes. It's just not
0: Wow. Well, and, and I mean, you've listened to the song how many times? Oh, God.
1: Oh, God. I used to listen to it every day when I would drive to school. So, um, a lot. A lot. <laughs> but, on the other hand, you have the next song, If You Wear That Velvet Dress, which is just very sexy, little gross, but just mm-hmm. like, I very much enjoy... That low register that Bono kind of gets into, um, because he doesn't—he—he he really didn't do that that much. You know, we've spent the past couple of albums listening to him break out this falsetto uh, that was really great, but that—that that, like deep, deep voice—that's—that's that's all the way good for me. <laughs>
0: Well, for me, it's the guitar on this one. Like I said for Playboy Mansion, like I just I was searching for something to to hook onto to kind of build some interest around the song. I started to get there with uh, if you wear this vel if you wear that velvet dress, and it was the guitar was for me. So the, that that's
1: the like little arpeggiated kind of yes, yeah, yeah. It's so good. It's so yeah, good. yeah,
0: really beautiful.
1: it doesn't it doesn't do the album any favors as far as momentum um because it it feels a little out of place where it's at it should have been on i really feel like it should have been on zeuropa instead of pop hmm. um because it it doesn't really necessarily fit the uh tone lyrically or even musically all all that much as it would have might have been better suited for um, Zorroba or or even just like one of the the many soundtracks that they did because you also have during this time they did um, Hold Me Thrill Me Kiss Me Kill Me which is an all time amazingly great U two song. Uh, yeah, th-
0: this yeah, and actually I saw you tweet something about that recently <laughs> and. Um, we got plenty, you know, to talk about with this album, but I, I was curious about that because that too has ranked as one of my, my lesser favorite Really?
1: Songs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay.
0: So what, what is it? So, what am I missing? So
1: you've chosen violence today. Um, so, <laughs> so hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me is just such a great, because you're not a lyrics guy, I can understand why mm-hmm. you might not be as attracted to it uh but let me just let me just pull up some lyrics here cuz i am going to to find the lyrics for this i can understand why people wouldn't like it because it is a batman movie soundtrack uh single but it is so just fascinating because it uses strings which you two didn't do as often at that at that time um it's got that great crazy guitar that's similar to kind of how they ended up doing on discotech, that like weird looping in the background sort of thing Mm -hmm. um but hold me thrill me should have been on pop honestly because it is also talking about that rock star life um you know you're living like a tart they don't know what you're doing babe it must be art uh, you're a headache in a suitcase. You're a star. They don't
0: know what you must
1: be It's it's so good <laughs> to me, to me, <laughs> and and I and I get why people people might not like it as much, but it is it does speak to that rock star life, but not in the not in the icky way that the rest of pop does, because um, he's he's talking about uh, just kind of almost whoring himself out as as a as a rock star, and how. Batman, by extension, is kind of a weird rock star at this point. And there's there's probably a lot more that could be looked into as far as, like, Batman Forever and being kitsch and uh, the the dangers of, of being too visible and too much of a rock star. Um, that's so good. <laughs> I, I, ri- well, I do encourage you to, to listen, and if you haven't seen the music video for it, I, I would highly recommend that too. I'm
0: almost positive I have, but it's been such a long time that I don't really remember it. So, oh, it's got um, Mr. McFisto. I,
1: you know, you, you gotta love Mr. McFisto.
0: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll check out the song of the video because I, I just wonder now in the context of having listened to this album a bunch of times if I'll, I'll hear it differently. I, I suspect I probably will. So let's uh, go back to the last two tracks here. You already talked a little bit about Please. Please. Um, And I I did not realize that this was about the Troubles in Ireland, so that immediately puts it in a a little bit of a different light for me.
1: Yeah, Please is is rough. Please is Mm -hmm. is really rough. I think it's one of... I mean, we've already been through a very desolate album, but Please is probably the, the lowest emotional point you can get up to because at this point he's pleading he's bitter he's just absolutely done with everything and I think um especially after 2001 it kind of got a little weird because one of the uh, the last lyrics is "September streets capsizing, spilling over down the drain, shards of glass, splinters like rain. You can only feel your own pain," and it kind of like reverberated in a very weird way for anyone who like witnessed uh, the the attacks on nine eleven. And I I think they've been a little hesitant to play it partially because of that but mostly because it is a very demanding and just dark and depressing kind of song Um, because he's just he's begging for things to stop He's, he's begging for people to kind of come to some sort of agreement or to be rational about this sort of thing and they just, they they don't. Because I, I, I feel like this one was written um, specifically because of one of the attacks that had ended a, a ceasefire. Uh, I feel like it was one of the, um, it wasn't Omar because that was later, but um, it, this was one of the ones where it was just a senseless, senseless thing. And U2's pleas is just, talking about that senselessness and even the music itself is just kind of bringing you down and drowning you and surrounding you. And just, it's, it's very sad.
0: It's very sad. And, uh, there's just a, a tone of desperation throughout much of the album and it really kind of builds to a crescendo in, in please.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean it, and it's it's also hitting you know uh, that very social, socio political kind of thing that U2 tends to do, um, but it's it's very unforgiving. It's very unforgiving um, because it, he's talking about you never knew how low you would stoop to make that call. And you never knew what was on the ground till they made you crawl. Um, and just talking about like the depths that humanity can can sink to. Again, it, th- there are some really interesting uh, music videos associated with all of these. And I, the video for Please is a little bit more arty than I think people wanted it to be. But the colors especially um, are, are, are seared into into my memory banks because it is just a... It's the song that makes you want to turn off the album and just kind of think about your life a bit. And not in necessarily a good way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh I mean, there's just one more track after this and I and I feel like it's really a good, you know, a good follow-up because you have that desperation of please and then uh Basically, a vulnerable plea to Jesus uh, in "Wake Up Dead Man." So I actually found this of the last five tracks that I lumped together and said that I thought were the the lesser part of the album. Uh, this to me was my favorite of of those,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, both musically and lyrically. Uh, I really yeah, I like the the main riff that that Edge plays in this one, um, but yeah, the lyrics are pretty pretty damn powerful too.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a hell of a song to end the uh, millennium on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you've got U2, biggest band in the world, just put out an album that very few people like, that they're not happy with, and Wake Up Dead, Man's kind of the last thing, officially, that you hear from them until All That You Can't Leave Behind comes out. And it's just like it is. Are they okay? <laughs> <laughs> are you guys all right? What's what's going on? Um, and again, it's it's that bitterness. It's that bitterness. It's that you know. This is the guy who didn't make it home from from the bar. Okay, this is. The guy who has lost everything that he didn't even know that he had to lose, um, and just uh, yelling, yelling at people and uh, yelling at God is is one of Bono's favorite pastimes, um, and especially at with Wake Up Dead Man, because you come from something like Please, where you've just witnessed your countrymen bombing the hell out of each other for reasons that are just ultimately unreasonable and then you, you're you like well okay the god that we all seem to believe in is absent why is this still happening so it's, it's a plea to, to god to be like please you know wake up do something Jesus, wake up, stop being a dead man, do this kind of thing. Um, and it is one of the, like, rare times that, you know, Bono, like, curses in, a, in, in the recording. Jesus, Jesus, help me. I'm alone in this world. Up
0: world I can only think of one other, uh, because he says shitty in Cedars of Lebanon, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Which which is interesting. That's the inter- only other one I can think of. Yeah, and that's um I remember hearing that and going. Okay. Bono, Bono did a curse. Bono did a swear. <laughs> um but it it is I do appreciate when people I'm not I'm not against cursing in any way, shape or form, but there's a a way that you can specifically weaponize, especially something like the F bomb, um when you don't use it. And then that last thing in Wake Up Dead Man, he uses it and you're like, Okay, things things are really, really bad right now. Um well and and
0: to me the word dead is actually the just the biggest um just explosion in the song um calling Jesus a dead man.
1: Yeah, because that that's like an- antithetical to the whole idea of Jesus is like this guy is alive. Jesus is alive he came back after 3 days you know he's waiting for us and uh he he's like addressing him directly. Were you around the corner? Did you even think to try and warn her? Or were you working on something new? You know? Yeah. I'm I'm waiting here. Maybe, I know you're looking out for us, but maybe your hands aren't free. You know, it's just, it's taking all of the blame and laying it at Jesus' feet and going, well, what the hell are you doing? because i'm over here suffering they're over there suffering i'm alone you said you would be here you know there's there's this is the point where you're supposed to carry me in the footprints in the sand kind of thing there's only supposed to be one set of footprints but it turns out the one set of footprints is just me because you're not here and it's uh it's brutal
0: it really is it really is but it's it's a good way to close the album and like I said, it's not really one of my favorite tracks, probably not in the top half, but that's also because I really like <laughs> the, the half of the tracks I like the best, I really, really like a lot. Um but it's a I like the fact that it's a downer. It feels like such an appropriate closer for this album, and and I give it points for that. Um like I, I like it when uh, a, a band will put out an opener that just feels like the perfect way to kick an album off, and in a, a closer that is just the the obvious way to to put the album to to bed. And this track it, it does that.
1: Yeah, and I I definitely think with time it's it's risen in the ranks for me, um, especially knowing uh, that beautiful day is the next track. Mm. Because if you're listening to all the all the albums in order, you have that hope knowing that beautiful day is the next thing. So it's kind of made retroactively even better by the fact that this this moment of desolation is followed by beautiful day.
0: Well, I'm gonna have to try that out. <laughs> uh, what's interesting is that I, I the last time that I listened to this album today uh I was listening on Spotify so then once the album was you know done Spotify just you know tossed me a random track mm-hmm. and that track was mysterious ways and that was an interesting That's that's comparison. a yeah
1: that's a uh that's that's a sideways turn um
0: Yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> So it was kind of you know interesting to you know sonically and you know just in terms of the the mood to make that transition
1: it's it's definitely something that I would recommend if you have the time and inclination to do so because I'm not going to force anybody to listen to pop more than they have to. If you don't already like it, then it's, it's going to be a hard listen. But if you listen to pop and then listen immediately to All That You Can't Leave Behind, um, you can really see how they are sort of twin album, angel on one shoulder, devil on the other kind of thing. Um, because they they drag in the second half, both of them, in kind of a similar way. Um, Because, God, all that you can't leave behind is front-loaded with with all the good songs. And uh, the back half is just very mournful and peaceful uh, in a way that pop is just devastating. Um, But yeah, I I would recommend.
0: I'm going to take you up on that. Uh, I can just imagine that segue from Wake Up Dead Man into Beautiful Day. And uh, yeah, I- I'm going to try that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, just just to make sure
1: that. that you don't end up on that, on that Wake Up Dead Man train where that's the last thing you hear before you go to bed for the night. And it's like, man, that was depressing.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely uh, cleanse the palate after that one. And if that, that that doesn't work in Mysterious Ways, that that worked pretty well, too. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, you want to talk about misheard lyrics in Little Red Van? You know, Shamu the Mysterious Whale is... Uh... <laughs> That's great.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not going to be able to unhear that one either. You,
1: you will never be able to. I mean, somebody told me that <laughs> once while waiting in line to get into a U2 show, and they played Mysterious Ways. And the way that Bono sings that song and doesn't enunciate his consonants in in the in that song i was like oh no show the mysterious way oh god you'll never be able to un- hear it
0: well i appreciate you bringing some levity <laughs> uh as you know this album just sings dig deeper and deeper into despair with each track so that's uh a good way to turn this around. Uh, but you know, that said, I mean, I, I really like this album so much more than I expected to because entering into this, um, I brought along all the ideas that I had about this album in 1997, which were remembering bad reviews and people saying that it wasn't a very good U2 album and me avoiding it and really not having any interest in listening to it. So, um, even though there are parts of it, I, I didn't like that much. Um, I I actually like it better than Zuropa. Like I, if I had to just put wow. on a YouTube album, wow. uh, I would definitely go to this one before Zuropa.
1: Wow, okay, that's that's awesome. <laughs>
0: that's not I what feel, I would I feel do, like the highlights, but you know, yeah. Well, I, I feel like maybe that's another discussion for another episode. Or. <laughs> But uh, I just feel like the highlights of this album are really high, among among the highest of, of any U two album.
1: Oh yeah, it, it's definitely the most inconsistent album because the highs are really high and the lows are very low. Um, when even someone like myself is is desperately trying to remember how one of the songs went, eh, it's not great. We'll just we'll leave the Playboy Mansion in the in the dust where it belongs. <laughs>
0: Well, Jordan, this has been a really, really fun discussion. I'm uh, so glad that you were uh, willing and able to come on here and uh, to give me a reason to listen to this album, you know, way, way later <laughs> that I probably should have. But like I said, the flip side of it was really cool to have, uh, you know, for me, what's kind of like this hidden U2 album that I can now enjoy, uh, in, in the 2020s. So, uh, I hope everybody out there has, uh, has enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I hope, uh, everybody gives Jordan a follow, uh, on Twitter. You're at ath Is there any place else that, um, would be a good place for people to to give you a follow, maybe get in touch if they had questions about you too or REM or anything else.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Twitter's Twitter's the place where you'll probably find me popping off the most about everything because I do have strong opinions about everything. Um, yeah, AthMusicJunkie. Music Junkie. Um, my website, of course, is athensmusicjunkie dot com. Uh, I talk about. Mostly Athens music there, but every once in a while I'll I'll throw in something probably u two related. Um, but yeah, just find me. I'm always happy to chat about anything <laughs> music related. So you yeah, know this this has been a lot of fun.
0: Uh, well, yeah, it's been great for me, too. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, follow Athens Music Junkie. You, you'll, you'll find you two stuff there, even though they are not, in fact, an Athens band, uh, in case anybody was, was wondering about they're, that.
1: They're honorary. They're honorary, you know. <laughs>
0: the, well, I guess if R.E.M. REM could record a, an album in Dublin, then, you know, why not?
1: Man, we're um, still trying to get them here. It's it's an inside joke that, you know, we, we, lo- we loaned Ireland R.E.M. quite a bit. So I feel like Ireland could could loan us you two for a day or so seems
0: like a very fair trade <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh well uh i hope you give me
0: a follow as well i'm on twitter at al bb and the show itself has a couple of accounts of both at you me album there's an account on twitter another account on instagram and i try to keep everybody current in both places in terms of uh when the show has come out and anything show related and announcing who the guests are and the featured album um a few days ahead of time to give you a chance to, to do your homework if you so choose. So uh, whether you did your homework or not, I thank you for uh, dropping by and listening and uh, Jordan, I thank you so much for uh, dropping in and uh, just uh, had a fantastic time. So thanks so much. Yeah. Likewise, man. All right. So uh, anyways, that's it for this episode. And uh, I will of course be back in yet another week with uh, another episode, another album. So until then, everybody, Listen to some great music, listen to some U2, and uh, take care.